This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. I think Jesus says, Father, those people are praying for their city. They're praying for their children, for their marriages. They're praying to see you in a way they've never seen you before. They want to see your glory, your salvation. They're asking you to help them desire to live under your lordship. They're praying for revival. They're praying that people would get saved, that the prodigals would come home, that dead bones would come to life. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and as we've been exploring this series so far, we're looking at the year of re, recommitment, reawakening, revival, restoration, and renewal. And today's message is looking at two passages, both Mark chapter 15 and Genesis 35. Join us now as Pastor Jeff begins this message on reawakening. I'm in Mark chapter 15, verse 1 through 15, and Genesis 35, 1 through 3. I'm going to jump right on into Mark 15. Here's what we read. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves, verse 16, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers or a den of thieves. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, I got to tell you, I've preached on this passage before. And every time I reread the passage, I'm always amazed at the way Jesus is emoting here, the way he's reacting to the situation. It's shocking because you don't see it any other way, any other place in the New Testament. The fact that Jesus would take tables and throw them aggressively onto the ground, overturn the tables, would take the money, throw it up into the air, and that he would forcibly prevent people from carrying merchandise through the temple. That's uncharacteristically aggressive. As if Jesus were saying, get out of here. You can't bring those things in here. And he goes to the people that are selling the oxen and the sheep and the goats and whatever they're selling. And he says, get out. And you, know, you never see Jesus doing this. He says, you're not welcomed in this place doing this kind of activity. Now, according to the scripture, this is not the first time Jesus has done this. We're reading out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, but in John 2, we're told that Jesus' very first visit to the temple, just after he had begun his public ministry, he did the same exact thing, only this time we're told in John chapter 2, verse 15, he actually makes a whip out of cords. Now, you think about that. That's premeditation. He's angry about something, righteous indignation, albeit, but he's still angry. You know the time it takes to think about what you're angry about and design a whip out of cord. So he's obviously thinking, I'm going to get these people. I'm going to run them out of the temple. They're violating the house of my father, the house of God. They've turned the house of prayer, the house of God, the house of prayer into a den of robbers or thieves. So this is premeditated. And then he returns near the end of his ministry on his way to Jerusalem, where he's days away from dying on the cross 
And he actually says to the disciples, wait here just a moment, guys. I got to make a visit. And they know where he's going. And he goes into what we call cleansing the temple again. He can't tolerate this kind of activity. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you have made it into a den of robbers or thieves. Now, as you think about what's going on here, the people who were there that Jesus was chasing out of the temple, they belonged there. There was no way to offer sacrifices that were prescribed in the Levitical code or the books of Moses unless the animals were available for purchase on site. You couldn't cart these animals all the way from your homeland because by the time you got them there, they would no longer be unblemished lambs, which was a requirement for sacrifice in the temple. So you had to purchase them once you arrived. So the people selling these animals and these goods were providing a service to assist you in the temple sacrifice. But evidently they had a movie mentality. Have you ever gone to the movie theater? You know, you pay $16 for a ticket, but then they gouge you on everything after that. You know, you're going to pay $20 for popcorn and Coke. The, the markup's probably, you know, 5,000%. You're paying $5 for a candy that will cost you 99 cents at Target, which is why a lot of people go to Target or Walmart and stock up before they go to the theater. But it's hard to stuff a lamb or a goat into your pockets. And these sellers were gouging the people. They were gouging them twice. They were gouging them, first of all, the price for convenience, but they were also charging an exorbitant exchange rate. You couldn't use Greek or Roman money. You had to exchange it for Jerusalem money that was minted right there in Jerusalem, and the exchange rate was criminal. So as they're carting their goods right through the court of the Gentiles, making the house of God a shortcut for profiteering, Jesus is appalled. He has this righteous indignation, and he exclaims every time he cleanses the temple, my father's house is a house of prayer but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus gets passionate and he basically says this. It's his way of saying this, the house of God is a very sacred place. My father wants to meet with you here. He longs to reveal himself to you in this place. He wants you to experience him in this place. Something supernatural happens when the people of God come together in the house of God and I don't want the house of God that's supposed to be a house of prayer turned into a place of selling and buying and ripping each other off through profiteering. In fact, he says, my father's house is supposed to be, is, it's what my father wants, a house of prayer. Is there preaching? Yes, but it's to be called a house of prayer. Is there singing? Yes, but it's to be called a house of prayer. Now stay with me for a moment. If you ever notice in the book of Acts, the Christian church is born, not while somebody's preaching, but while somebody was praying. Yes, preaching soon followed because you have to hear and you have to respond. The gospel needs to be delivered. The good news needs to be heard. But it's always preceded when there's true conversion by prayer. It's prayer that softens the hearts of the people to hear the beauty and the power and the wonder of the gospel. When the church is born in Acts chapter 2, they were doing what? They were praying and waiting on God. And after praying and hoping and waiting, Pentecost came, the birth of the church. People got saved. The Holy Spirit came. And the reason is 
Because Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Next chapter four, the legal authorities arrest Peter and the others. They threaten them. They warn them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, preaching the message of forgiveness and salvation and restoration. There's no freedom of speech here. What do the Christ followers do? They don't go and protest. They don't go to the Supreme Court. They, they don't attempt to get political leverage. No, they go back to a prayer meeting in a house and they pray, oh God, give us the boldness in spite of these threats. Give us the courage to do what is right in the face of death. God's intentions for us as the people of God, for you and your individual life. When in trouble, pray. When intimidated, pray. When challenged, pray. When persecuted, pray. When anxious, pray. When afraid, pray. And folks, there's something special according to the Bible about our prayers. When my mother died, a couple of years went by, and one day I went to visit my father who was still living, and he took me in the back bedroom, and he opened up this huge chest. And he said, I want to show you something. I've been going through some of your mother's things. And he pulled out this box in the chest, and it had all of my drawings from elementary school and first grade and second grade. It had basketball clippings from every game I had played since I was six years old. Preschool coloring book. And my dad reminded me that your mother kept these things because she values the accomplishment of her children. And I took it to mean that I was clearly her favorite, which I still maintain that I am. But why would my mother keep these things? They're precious to her. Do you know that I remember reading Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, where the Bible says, Now when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. I remember hearing Jim Simula preach. He's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And this is a church where more people come to the Tuesday night prayer meeting than come to the weekend services. It's an amazing place with an amazing passion for the Holy Spirit and for prayer. And Jim Cimbala, in commenting on this passage in Revelation 5, says this, what must prayer be to God that he keeps it in bowls? As if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit will often come together and say, get out the bowl, read another one of those prayers. Read another one. Read another. The prayers of the saints are so precious to God that he keeps them and reads them again and again. When you and I stand or kneel in prayer and we begin to talk to God, when we really open our hearts as a congregation or as individuals, and when we pray prayers that are motivated by burden of the heart, prayers that come from way down deep, somehow those strong prayers of faith and desperation are kept and stored because they're so precious to God. And the reason is, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I got it. Do you? I have finally discovered the commonality in revivals in the past. We're in this series, and we're wanting revival. And we've defined revival in the past as seeing things you've never seen and feeling things that you've never felt and being able to do things you've never been able to do. You sense God in a way that you've never felt his presence before. His whispers become louder and louder in your life. His leading becomes more and more obvious day to day. 
But in the past, we've talked about byproducts of revival, but we've never really looked at the definition of what revival is. We've said that during revival, people start praying. And as a result, God shows up. The captives are set free. The broken hearts are mended. People get saved. People far from God come near. Dry bones come to life and live again. And even though God is always here, and God has always been moving, when revival comes, these things just seem to happen more often with greater frequency and greater measure. This is the history of revival. This is the commonality. And this is exactly what happened at the Great Awakening in 1734. The Great Awakening actually began in a little town of only 1,100 people. It began with these small group of people, this small group of people in this small town began praying for God to send revival, not only through their city or town, but through all of America, America as it was at that time. And as you read the story of the Great, of the way, of the great Awakening, you, you realize that out of the blue, in response to the prayers of the people who were praying for revival, the most infamous town prostitute stumbled across John 8, where Jesus forgives and shows great mercy and compassion to a woman in the same profession. God breathes life into this woman who's reading the text in this American small town as she reads her Bible. Now the question is, what prompted her to read the Bible? Who moved, what moved her to search the scripture? And the answer, of course, is the prayers of this small group of people as they prayed for revival. So she reads the Bible. The Spirit breathes life into her, opens her eyes. She repents. She becomes spiritually woke. And as a result, word spread of her dramatic conversion and one-third of the town was converted. One-third. Around the same time, God had called a man by the name of George Whitfield to preach the message of hope and restoration to an America that was headed in the wrong direction. 900,000 people would hear his message. That was 80% of the entire American population at that time. All beginning with the conversion of someone most religious people had written off. Her conversion as a result of people praying for revival. Revival broke out. I found this description. In the annals of history, here is how revival was defined during the Great Awakening. And I quote, It pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of Christian grace and the powerful practice of holy religion. Look at that. What happened? Conversion on a mass scale, turning away from a formal, cold, careless profession of faith to a faith that was alive and the powerful practice of holy religion. In other words, the disciplines returned. There was a passion to read the scripture, to pray, to live together in Christian community, a passion for worship, and praise and thanksgiving. So that during a revival, God supernaturally transforms believers and non-believers in a church, a locale, a nation, a region, or the world through sudden, intense enthusiasm for Jesus, his salvation, and sanctification. 
You read about the history of revival that has happened again and again, and you begin to realize that during revival, people sense the presence of God in a powerful way. During corporate worship, people from the outside come in and they say, surely God is in this place. Things like conviction and contrition and repentance and prayer come easily. People long to come into the house of the Lord. People thirst for God's word. Conversions pile on. Prodigals come home. Dry bones rise again. And it all begins with prayer. This is the commonality. This describes what happened in the Great Awakening in 1734 to 1743. And again, in the Second Great Awakening in 1800, where only 1 in 15 of America's population of 5,300,000 at the time attended an evangelical church. Once again, a group of people began to pray. They prayed for months. They prayed for years. And in response, God calls a man by the name of Charles Finney. And Finney began preaching about sin and forgiveness and heaven and hell and salvation and repentance. And when he's finished, the church had grown from 350,000 to 3 million. But it all began in prayer. Revivals continue in 1875, 1905, 1906, where William Seymour, an African-American pastor, blind in one eye, began a prayer meeting. He preached in a local church in the city of Los Angeles, the city of angels, after which they kicked him out because he mentioned things like sin and repentance and hell and judgment and atonement, rejected he started a prayer meeting in a small uh, uh, town or small uh, townhouse-like, not too far from the city center, downtown LA. The prayer meeting became so large that they acquired the dilapidated Methodist church at 312 Azusa Street, where daily prayer meetings continued for three years. In that time, in response, revival began to break out all over Los Angeles. Churches were planted, missionaries were sent out, Bible colleges were launched, but most importantly, conversions piled on. People got saved. Backsliders renewed their commitment to resist the trappings of the world and dedicated themselves to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But it all began with prayer. Okay, Jeff, we got it. What's your point? My point is, what if God wants to bring revival again? What if he wants to heal those who are ill? What if God wants to cure our depression, heal our city, our nation, bring our children back to God, our grandchildren back into his presence? What if he wants to heal our marriages, our diseases, our struggles, our hurts, our habits, our hangups, whatever they are? What if he truly does want to give us a glimpse into heaven that will awaken our spirit to a hope and a future that is unshakable? What if he wants to open the eyes of the blind to reveal the shallowness of the pursuits of the world, to magnify the reality of the kingdom of God not made with hands? What if God really wants to do all these things? He's simply poised, waiting for us to get serious about prayer. James 5, 16, I've read numerous times. I prefer the King James Version here because I believe that it communicates the actual meaning of the original text. The effectual prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
the effectual, the Greek word is strength, strong, the strong prayer, a prayer that comes deep, that's motivated by a strong burden of the heart. That prayer of a righteous man, this is not a perfect man or woman. Righteous simply means they're saved by grace through faith. They are deemed righteous by God because of the sacrifice of Christ. When that kind of person prays a strong prayer, we're told it availeth much. The Greek word is energase. God releases his energy. It's the word from which we get energy or power. Prayer is the key then that unlocks all the treasures of heaven and the power of God. And his house, will there be preaching? Yes. Will there be singing? Yes. But his house shall be called a house of prayer. My first time to Rwanda to preach to those who were in prison, you have this spirit of evil over the city. You could feel it as soon as you got off the airplane, checked in or through the airport, and walked out into the hills. And they introduced me to my translator who would go with me into the prisons, Anastas Samamuga. And I noticed... I had, I had spoken numerous times in my times in Africa over 10 years with translators. But I never had a translator like Anastas. As I began to preach, he stood with a look of anticipation. It was like he was poised and ready. Jeff, give me something I can give to these people. His knees were always bent a little. He was turned half toward me and half toward the audience. And it was like, please give us something that can heal our land, that can heal our nation. You speak the words and I'll translate it. And hopefully people far from God will come near. Hopefully the spirit of God will descend on this prison and people will repent and God will restore our land. Every time I think of that, I think of Romans 8 verse 26. For we do not know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and we're told that he stands ready. He is in a posture of anticipation. He is waiting to receive our prayers so that he takes them to the Father. And he is our advocate. He is on our side, waiting to release the power of the Holy Spirit when his people pray. I think Jesus says, Father, those people are praying for their city. They're praying for their children, for their grandchildren, for their marriages. They're praying to see you in a way they've never seen you before. They want to see your glory, your salvation. They're asking you to help them desire to live under your lordship. They're praying for revival. They're praying that people would get saved, that the prodigals would come home, that dead bones would come to life. And Father, they have finally realized that their struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark age. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. The reality of our lives become so apparent that we have been chasing things that do not matter, that can never deliver, and suddenly in one moment of time, motivated by a deep burden of the heart, we begin to pray, God, bring revival. 
You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.